We need to let the Spirit of God consume us with zeal, lest we're consumed by our sin. I think we're either consumed by zeal or we're consumed by sin against God. Zeal for God or sin against God. What in your temple needs cleansing this morning? May we receive the gift of grace that is called conviction. And may we besiege our sin, declare war against it, make a whip if needed, and we break those things in our lives. We remove those areas that crowd out and cloud out the simple and straightforward worship of God in our bodies and lives. Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and today you're listening to a teaching from John chapter 2 called Jesus is the Zealous. We're going to see Jesus like we've never seen him before in the book of John. Hope you enjoy the podcast. God bless you. Well, recently, a little confession moment. Recently, I was in line at a store, and and I just have to be honest, it was a donut shop. I I do have to... I have to tell you that. Some of you are new. You don't know the, the affinity that your pastor has with donuts. We have a kind of a love-love relationship. There's no hate. There's no hate there at all. Love donuts. And um, actually, Friday was National Donut Day, and I didn't make my way into a donut shop, which uh, seemed a little bit like uh, remorseful. It was kind of a sad day for me, but we made up for it yesterday and had a dozen. But um, we... <laughs> We were um, going into this donut shop, and as we, we walked in, um, it has a reputation in kind of um, Bradenton, Sarasota. I don't think it's there anymore uh, because of the hurricane kind of took it out, but um, basically went into this donut shop, and we ordered all of our, our pastries. We were real excited about it, and we go to pay, and um, you know, I take out my, my debit card um, to pay, and I'm looking for where you swipe, but now it's not just you swipe, you you now insert, right? And it takes a lot longer and it beeps at you and, and you can't swipe anymore and half the machines don't take it. And so I'm looking for that. I'm kind of standing there awkwardly and the lady looks and she goes, oh, no, 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 no. We only take cash. We only take cash. How many of you have heard someone say that? Uh, raise your hand high. We only take cash, okay? And I thought, huh, oh, wow, okay. Do you guys have indoor plumbing yet? Are you kidding me? You only take cash? That's all that you take? If you start thinking about it, you can pay for anything today using almost everything. Just think about it for a minute. Today, uh, you can pay with a piece of plastic, right? You can walk into a store with a piece of plastic with some raised numbers on it. This isn't a real credit card, if anyone wants this. This is uh, this was some bank that said we can uh, double our credit line if we'll sign up with them.com. Um, so you can pay with a, credit, uh, a piece of, of plastic. So that's there. Um, you can actually pay... Uh, with, I don't even have one, but you can pay with a piece of paper. It's called a check. You guys, anyone have a check? Does anyone know what checks are anymore? All right, so you can, I was at a place one time and they said, yeah, we take checks. I said, oh, I thought you took money. (laughs) That's fine, no worries, I can write a piece of paper. So uh, you can pay with paper now. Um, We can actually pay with a coin, all right? Uh, So this is is actually uh, a minted coin. This is uh, actually, uh, this is a, Mexican pesos. This is 10 Mexican pesos. You can pay with a coin. A lot of you guys um, actually collect these. You keep coins in drawers and in folders. Does anyone want this? Does anyone want this Mexican peso? Someone on the front? front uh, come on. Someone, come on up here. Grab this. This is yours. Come on up. Come grab this. She doesn't want to come up. I think it's worth, yeah, it's worth about five cents. So come up and get it later. All right, that's for you. You can pay with, with not just coins, but Bitcoin. 
right? So a lot of you, if you're into Bitcoin, either made a lot of money recently or you lost a lot of money recently, right? Um, you can pay with, with, uh, with printed modified fabric. This is a $20 bill. Does anyone want this? <laughs> yeah, figured you would, yeah. You can pay with your phone. So now I, I go through Chick-fil-A, I go through Starbucks, certain donut places, and I can actually pay with no wallet. I can just kind of look at my phone and then kind of like beep, and then it takes my money, they scan it. How awesome is that? Hashtag tech, love that. Back in the day, low tech, you could actually pay with your phone. So Western Union, that was a thing. You actually could connect to the phone. Does anyone know what this is? Does anyone understand what this is? Anyone under 20 here today does not know what that is. And so there's a, a, a group of things that you can pay with. Um, one time we had a Discover card, and we discovered that no one takes Discover. That's what we discovered. So you can pay with a, a multitude of different things. But we hate to hear that phrase, we only take cash. Isn't that frustrating? That frustration pales in comparison with what's happening in our text today, in our passage today. And I use that as a silly opening illustration so you'll remember this text. So you'll remember the frustration that people walking into Jerusalem to worship God were experiencing. It's a very small comparison. But as we read this section in the book of John, we're going to see God's house being transformed into a marketplace, a place of merchandising and financial gain rather than a house of prayer and holiness. We're going to see Jesus like we've never seen him in John up till now, not as Jesus, the Lamb of God, but the lion of the tribe of Judah. And no matter how you skate around this, Jesus seems angry here, but he's zealous. He's passionate. And we're going to see Jesus driving out those who have turned the temple into a place where people are taken advantage of, and the worship of God is desecrated by the love of money. Listen, there are some things that should not happen in God's house. Amen? I don't know if I heard you. Amen? There's some things that don't happen in the house of God. And we're going to see Jesus here passionate about the purity of his house. So if you're taking note today, we're going to put three sections of uh, outline up on the screen for you. If you're taking note, I hope you are. We're going to see verses 12 through 17, the restoration of the temple, and how Jesus restores it to the way it should be. We're going to see in verses 18 through 22, the resurrection of the body. We'll see what Jesus was really talking about. And then in verses 23 and 25, we'll see repentance from the heart, okay? So that's our outline, restoration, resurrection, repentance. So let's begin by looking at verse 12, at the restoration of the temple. Look at it with me. After this, after what? After the wedding in Cana, Jesus went down to Capernaum, and notice that John says, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So Last week, we learned Jesus was in Cana of Galilee. Now he heads uh, down to Capernaum with his mother, with his brothers, with his disciples. So if you're taking note, we can assume Joseph, his uh, mother, Mary's husband, right, his earthly father, so to speak, uh, has most likely died. He's off the scene. Uh, Jesus' sisters, we know he had at least a sister, probably married off. Maybe that was the wedding that he was at in Canaan. We don't know. But they don't join him. But his mother, his brothers, and his disciples do. And they descend. They literally go downhill from 
uh, the city of Cana to the city of Capernaum, downhill in elevation uh, to this little village on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. So here's a map to give us reference. You see Cana way to your left, and then you see Capernaum right at the tip at the top, uh, kind of 11 o'clock on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. So that was the distance. Uh, that's kind of the way they headed downhill. Here's a map of Capernaum today, uh, or a picture. If you were to do a drone flyover, a small little uh, town, you can see the mountainous region in the distance. So this was kind of a downhill uh, seaside walk. So uh, the text tells us in verse 12, Jesus did not stay there. They didn't stay there many days. Why? Because it's springtime and it's time for a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's the annual celebration of Passover. Look at verse 13. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's literally uphill. He went uphill. Okay? Now, if you're taking note, I want you to circle the word Passover. Very, very instructive. Very, very important for the Jew. Uh, Passover was in the month of Nisan. That's not our car, right? N-I-S-A-N, Nisan. It's our modern-day March-April, basically. So, very exciting time for the Jewish people and still is today. Very exciting time. Uh, basically, every adult male who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem uh, was required to attend this annual feast. And it was really the dream of, of every Jew from you know, the whole world scattered around to at least get one visit to Jerusalem at Passover. They estimate that as many as 2.5 million Jews would all be collected in and around the city of Jerusalem for this incredible feast. Passover uh, was an incredible feast that we learn about the backstory of in Exodus. And we have time to go into it today, but essentially the destroying angel passed over. Remember the houses of the Israelites who had painted the blood on the door uh, post of their home, the blood of the lamb, right? And so a lot of symbolism, obviously. And so at this time of the year, they would, for an entire month, carefully repair the streets and, and they would rebuild the bridges. They even would whitewash the tombs uh, of those who were dead and buried. And during the preparation for Passover, there was to be no leaven in the house. You were to remove all the leaven. It was to be taken out. It was a picture of, of sin, leavening the whole lump. And so they'd come in and they'd sweep their house and even into the streets Someone in modern-day Jerusalem uh, said, watch this, and he threw some trash on the street during Passover, and it was quickly brought, uh, a guy walked by and quickly swept it up. And so this is kind of where many people believe we get the spring cleaning idea from, that it's from the Passover preparation, spring cleaning. We kind of do a full, clean sweep, well, most of us. And so the problem was, don't you see this? The problem was that they forgot to clean the most important part of Jerusalem, and that's the temple. The temple was defiled. That's like having dinner guests over and you're cleaning your closet and not the living room, right? We need to clean the area that's probably going to be the most important to our host. And so why was the temple needing cleanse? Look at verse 14. It says, he, Jesus, found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. All right, so... Look around this room for a minute. We're in a gymnasium here this morning. We've done our best to transform it into a worshipful type environment, but it's still a gymnasium. This is going to be a little bit different than the place of worship that the Jews would uh, celebrate and worship God in. Um, the temple was laid out very specifically, and we'll show you a picture of it. You basically had the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, 
Uh, then you would also have the women's court, the court of the women. Uh, and then within the temple building, uh, you, would, you would basically have the court of Israel, the court of the priests. Of course, you had the holy place, the veil, and the holy of holies. And so this was a, a, a very um, specifically laid out uh, diagram of how God wanted the temple to be laid out. I think we have another picture uh, of another angle of it. So this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, is where many people believe these money changers would have been uh, located. They're in proximity to the Holy of Holies, but they're in and crowding around what's called the court of the Gentiles. A lot of people believe that they used to be outside of the temple courts near the Pool of Bethesda, but in Jesus' day, they move inside to this place. And notice where they're at. They're in the place where the outsider is coming to learn about God. You follow me? Where the exile, where the, the outcast, the person who's not a Jew was coming in to learn about God. And it was in this place. Oh, you're hungry and you're thirsty. You want to know the living God. Well, there's going to be a cost to pay, and I'm going to put something in the way to take that access that God wanted every nation, every tribe, every tongue to have. We're actually putting a barrier in front of that access. And listen, church, listen, people, anytime we put any barrier in front of a genuine seeking worshiper who wants to know God, and we put a stumbling block, we as believers live a compromising lifestyle for the people around us to say, nah, that's hypocrisy. When, me, when we as, as pastors, right, have bad doctrine, when we as pastors have bad theology, bad living, right, when we're not living the life that God's called us to live, we can block uh, people from having access. And so this space that was supposed to be access for all people to come and worship and know God was being exploited for financial gain. You might say, well, how? Well, how was it? Notice again with me in verse 14, there's people selling oxen, sheep, doves, and there's money changers doing business, okay? So here's what would happen. Every Jew that was over 19 years of age was required to pay the temple tax. A lot of us got our taxes done recently, and in Jerusalem, you would pay an additional tax, the temple tax. The temple tax um, was basically allowing the sacrifices and the rituals to continue through the Passover celebration. And the cost of it, if you're taking note, was a half shekel, half shekel. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you today, but it's basically two days amount of work. So think about how much you make at your job in a day, multiply that by two, that's about how much money the temple tax was. So uh, adjusting for inflation, 2018, Lakewood Ranch, the median income, we're going to say about, someone's going to say that's not how much I make, but maybe about 200 to 300 a, a person is how much you would have to shell out uh, to worship. And so when you walked into Jerusalem, you could bring any type of currency, right? You could just walk in with anything. You could come in with, with Greek coins. You could come in with Roman coins, Egyptian coins. You could even come in with a, a, a Tyre and Sidon coin. But inside the temple, the only acceptable form of payment was the Tyrian, what's called the tetradrachma. And basically, this was what had a higher silver content. I think we have a picture uh, of one on the screen. Uh, the Tyrian coin here used an image of the god uh, Melkart, basically the king of the city. And it was kind of equivalent to um, the Baal of the Old Testament. And later they replaced the coin during a revolt with a Judean shekel. But if you didn't have that coin, you were out of luck. They're like, we don't take discover. I'm sorry, we only take our specific kind of cash. Sorry, you're out of luck. 
And so people arrive all around the world and they enter the court of the Gentiles. And in order to worship God rightly, they would have to exchange their money. There's a lot of thought about this. Many people would say, well, you know, the convenience fee they were charging was kind of like an exchange rate. It wasn't that high. But some people have found that they could have been making as much as a day's wage on every transaction. So whether or not they're complicit in this, it's the location that they're doing it in. Brian Broderson, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, says this, when a Jew came to worship in Jerusalem, he was to bring a sacrifice or buy one at the temple. But the priests had hiked up the prices astronomically. The money changers inflated the exchange rate for Jewish worshipers from all over the world. The people were being robbed. There is little record in the scriptures of Jesus being angry, but on this occasion, he was. So I walk in, I'm a Jew, how do I buy my sheep or my dove if you guys don't take my form of payment? Uh, Well, we have to exchange it. And that exchange rate means the exchangers and the priests who are running the whole sham operation are making a profit off of my worship. And listen, that incenses Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, as Joe read it earlier, you caught this. Uh, Verse 15, did anyone catch this? He made a whip of cords. Did anyone catch that? Raise your hand if you caught that when you read that. I mean, that tickles me a little bit. We'll get to that. He made a whip out of cords. All right, wow. Uh, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changer's money, and overturned the tables. That would have taken some time. Right? He's going around, he made a whip. Okay, first of all, if I can have your attention, that takes a little bit of time. Right? So here's the sheep tied up because sheep wander, right? Oxen kind of moo and they walk around. And so you got to keep them contained, man. So you've got maybe some leather straps kind of holding these animals in place. And so Jesus kind of unhooks it, unhooks the sheep. There you go. Right? And then he needs another one. And so he takes another one. He starts kind of making the, the whip. Right? Did they know what was happening at this point as he's braiding this whip? He's like, hang on, guys, I'll be there. I'll deal with you in a minute. He's braiding the whip. He made it. I love he doesn't like Indiana Jones style whip one out. Like he brought one to the party. He made one. He's pulling pieces together to make a whip, and he begins to drive out the animals and the people. A lot of scholars say, oh, he just used the whip on the animals. He would never use the whip on the people. One person said it was his spirit that drove the people out. I'm like, yeah, he had a whip. I don't know. I read a whip. I mean, he is, he's angry, right? This is epic, right? But listen, though Jesus was angry, follow with me, guys. He wasn't, he wasn't sinful in his anger. I'm not making this up. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 27 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for Why? We're members of one another. None of us here are isolated. We're not an island. And so we need to speak truth to one another and put off falsehood, right? This is that section in Ephesians where we put off sin and we put on righteousness. So we put that off. And then he says, be angry and notice, do not sin. So there is a righteous anger and there's a sinful anger. How do I know the difference? Usually if I'm involved and I'm upset, it's probably sinful anger. Not always, but probably. And then he says, do not let the sun go down in your anger, we're not to keep angry offenses against others even a day. We're going to go deal with it then. If right now in this church there's anyone who's got unforgiveness and bitterness and anger against, clamor against someone else, it quickly leads to wrath and it quickly leads to slander. So I want to encourage you to work that out. I want to encourage you to, to deal with that, right? Don't let the sun go down. And then he says, give no opportunity to the devil. So what do we do? We speak falsehood. We put um, or we, no, we don't speak falsehood. We put off falsehood, we speak truth. 
Uh, we put off sinful anger and any anger that lingers beyond a day. And instead, we put on righteous anger. Okay? Here in this text, guys, Jesus is straight up angry, but he isn't sinful. No, he's consumed with zeal for God's house. And so as he's doing this, he's not doing it in a rash way. He's not doing it in a rude way. But he's cleansing the temple in a way that shows the priority of God's holiness. R. Scott Clark suggests something interesting. He's, he said, how did Jesus clear the temple? By the force of his moral power. Jesus was utterly correct and righteous, and everyone there in his heart of hearts knew Jesus was righteous. One writer notes that Christ had a powerful confederate in the consciousness, uh, consciousness, consciences of the offenders. Wow. Jesus was angry. And this wasn't the first time that the temple was cleansed. Uh, and it isn't the last time that it's cleansed. If you're uh, taking note this morning, I just want to jot a few verses down, and we'll put these on the screen and kind of list them out. This is not the first time the temple was cleansed, okay? Um, so I'm just going to walk through these verses real quick. You can leave that up, media guys, just for a few minutes. Genesis 3.8, that verse is where Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden uh, for becoming unclean. They were defiled by sin. And so a sense, in a sense, God says, no, in my presence, we've got to have holiness. We've got we to cleanse this. And so they are removed from the garden. In Exodus 19 and Ezra chapter 8, the Jews were called to be a kingdom of priests. And yet, what happened? They were exiled out of the land of Israel. Uh, the nation had defiled itself and could no longer inhabit the temple. In, in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah discovers that there's a storage chamber in the temple where the grain offering, the frankincense, and the vessels and the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil were supposed to be kept. But what had happened was it was being used, the storeroom was being used as kind of a special little green room for Tobias or Tobias. So Nehemiah says he was so angry that he took the furniture and he chucked it outside. He just throws the furniture out. You ever gotten in a fight with a boyfriend, girlfriend when you were in your early 20s? You got in a big fight and you just got so mad you threw a piece of furniture? Has that ever happened to you? No, no maybe not this week. All right, all right. So he was so angry, he's throwing furniture, and then he brings back the vessels of God, the grain offering, the frankincense. In Zechariah 14, 21, Israel is promised a cleansing of the temple on the great day of the Lord. It says, when that time comes, no traitor shall again be seen in the house of the Lord of hosts. And that's what's happening here. Uh, Malachi 3.1 actually foreshadows that, that the messenger, John the Baptist, will come, and then right after him, the Lord will suddenly enter into his temple. And so we see John the Apostle capturing this connection. And finally, you see Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11. In this passage, Jeremiah says, Has this house, which bears my name, become in your eyes a den of thieves? This bears my name, and yet within it, they're thieves. He says, I see what's being done, says the Lord. Now, this is not the only time the temple is cleansed. Later in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, there's a second cleansing. Uh, and there Christ calls the Jewish leaders uh, a den of thieves. And so there's two temple cleansings. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is he so upset? Uh, it's the location. See, this isn't as much the what as it is the where, okay? It's the fact that it's happening in God's house, in the temple, right? You would sell sacrifices in the towns, and that wasn't a big deal. But when it's in the temple, now we've got a problem. Just think of this illustration. Think of, moms, you're, you're giving birth to your, your child, 
And once the baby is brought into the world, in that room, that room, I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like a sacred place. That place is beautiful. That place is amazing. This is where life is entered. There's just something special about that moment when uh, your child is born. Now, imagine the nurses come into the room and they say, okay, so, hey, I know your baby's a little uh, messy, and so um, we have some towels available for you, but um, they're only going for $2 right now, so if you want to go ahead, I've got, a, I've got a, um, a debit card reader right here. We have an ATM machine, so we can go ahead and you can make that transaction happen now, and we'll go ahead and towel your baby off, uh, right? It's not as much offensive that you had to pay for the towels. It's that the transaction's happening in this room. It's not right. It doesn't feel right. There's something off. This shouldn't happen, right? The same is true of the temple, um, the money changers, probably a little shifty. The sellers of sacrifices, yeah, they're pocketing a pretty penny. But it's where they were doing business that was the problem. Notice verse 17. It says that they, the disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's consumed me. And this is a reference to Psalm 69, verse 9. It's consuming me, this zeal for God's house. Why? Because business is being conducted uh, in a place where business should not have been happening, where God was supposed to be worshipped, where uh, the, in that sense of that word, the gospel, the good news of Jehovah, right, in their context, was to be presented. And instead, there was something blocking that. And what was it? It was the love of money. And that should never happen. And there may be some of you here today, and that's been your experience with the ministry, but that's been your experience with uh, a pastor, uh, trying to approach God, and yet you've been fleeced as the flock for money. You've been badgered or berated. Uh, maybe you were a part of a ministry where they're asking for money all the time. What I love about Shoreline, we don't pass the plate here. You may notice that already if you're new. Uh, we have a box in the back, and we don't make a big incident out of it, right? We don't, like, block the, the exit, with the box, we don't put trip wire, right? We're not kind of at the door handing out envelopes. Hey, are you gonna give today, right? No one's calling you up, I don't think so anyway, and saying, hey, you're late on your giving this month. We don't do that, we're not fleecing the flock. And if you've been in a part of a ministry that's done that, I am sorry that that's been your experience. And that's not right, it's not the way it should be. See, zeal for your house has consumed me, it's eaten me up. The temple court here was the only place on the planet that Gentiles were expected to come and worship. And here they're being hindered because someone wanted to make money off of them. Church, we need to be very discerning of who we support in the ministry. Why? Because there's a lot of charlatans out there. Okay, I can't believe that this happened this week in light of what we were studying. It's almost as if we timed it like, to talk about this this week, but we didn't. This just happened to happen in the news. This is crazy. Uh, but there's a man um, that's, he uses the title pastor. His name's Jesse Duplantis. And he asked his congregation this week on Facebook and online for $54 million in donations to buy, I think we have a picture of him, to buy his fourth private jet, right? $54 million. Here's what he said uh, about that. Uh, he said, it allows me to fly to the corners of the earth. With one new jet, I can go anywhere in the world with one stop. And here's what he says. I want you to believe in me for a Falcon 7X. I really believe that if the Lord Jesus Christ was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be in an airplane flying all around or all over the world. Wow. He uh, appeared on Kenneth Copeland's TV show about his previous jet purchase, and they both defended the necessity of having a private jet. Now, as your pastor, I don't need a private jet, right? But a new car would be great. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> or nervous laughter. <laughs> Do we laugh at that? Is he serious? Uh, I've seen his car. I don't know. Just kidding. All right. Um, listen, this is not the only time this has happened. Uh, this happened a few years back with a guy named Creflo Dollar. His name is Dollar, okay? Um, and, and he basically fleeced his flock for $65 million. Okay, It goes further back than that. Historically, the Catholic Church fell into the same error as these Jews. Uh, they sold what were called indulgences. The idea was, hey, we want to we dispense grace earned by your acts of piety. And so if you want to engage in the sacraments at church, you got to pay a pretty penny. And so the idea was, uh, basically, this will grant you a contrite heart if you're to pay this. So Martin Luther condemned these uh, in 1517, almost 1,500 years after Jesus condemned them, uh, the same similar practice in the temple, okay? Church, here's what I'd ask you to do. Please research who you give money to and be very careful. I believe that we should give to the Lord, not to a ministry, give to the Lord, and we do that uh, in our first fruits to the local church that we uh, are submitted to the leadership of. And we, in addition to that, uh, give to global missions and other important ministries that are making a powerful and solid gospel impact. Uh, but those ministries still need financial accountability. And so these men make God's house a den of thieves. Listen, Jesus says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. We could easily say it this morning in our community, do not make my father's house a house of entertainment. Do not make my father's house a house of popcorn and movie sermons. Do not make my father's house a house of smoke, fog, lights, cameras, and inaction. Do not make my father's house a house of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Do not make my father's house a house of ethical, sexual, or moral compromise. Do not make my father's house a house of self-righteous legalism. His house is to be, what? A house of prayer. Uh, at the Passover, you're to remove anything leavened. Uh, it's a symbol of being cleansed from sin. And one person wrote this. They said, Christ, who we see following the legitimate religious expressions, is the enemy of those who falsely practice religiosity. They are threatened by Jesus' legitimacy, and he chases them out of the temple. Wow. I want to give an application for each one of these points. So if you're taking note, here's the first thing we're going to apply uh, to uh, this first point. Uh, this is that Jesus will always clean house. He'll always clean house. I warn you, this is a heavy passage, right? Uh, Jesus will always clean house. Thus, we must besiege whatever will consume us, right? Not because Jesus is mad, but because he's zealous for the, for the Father's glory. In like manner, our body is to be, and it is called, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we're told we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit within us. How? When we walk in unbelief, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. When we have unrepentant sin, when we have transgression, which is willful disobedience, we need to let the Spirit of God consume us with zeal, lest we're consumed by our sin. I think we're either consumed by zeal or we're consumed by sin against God. Zeal for God or sin against God. What in your temple needs cleansing this morning? May we receive the gift of grace that is called conviction, and may we besiege our sin, declare war against it, make a whip if needed, and we break those things in our lives. We remove those areas that crowd out and cloud out the simple and straightforward worship of God in our bodies and lives. 
Well, let's look at our second section. Look at verses 18 through 22. 18 says, so the Jews answered and said to him, remember, he's driving out all these people. He's opening the cages. The doves are flying away and and the oxen and sheep are running everywhere. And and now the people kind of turn and say, hey, we need to get someone. And so they bring in the Jews and uh, the Jewish religious leaders. And so they said to them, verse 18, they said, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay? Now note with me first that the Jews wanted a sign. It seems like they always wanted a sign. Just give me a sign, and I'll believe. Matthew 12 on the screen, 38 and 39, says that some of them said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, okay? Uh, Literally, Jesus says the exact same thing to the same group in Matthew 16. Uh, The Jews, hey, just want to see a sign, then I'll believe, uh, supposedly. And Paul picks up on this and tells the Corinthian church that Jews will demand signs, Greeks will seek wisdom. But Jesus wasn't interested in providing a sign for them to believe. His sign was coming, the greatest sign, the greatest miracle that would ever be performed, and that's being raised from the dead. That is the sign of Jonah. He's I'm not giving you any sign. And then he did give some signs, but the greatest sign was to be risen from the dead. And so what does he say? He says, hey, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, when he said destroy the temple, they were looking around, and they were like, well, hang on. And so look at verse 20. Look at their response. They didn't get it. It sounded ridiculous. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And they didn't get this. Uh, historians record that Herod had begun work on this temple around 20 BC. So 46 years after that would put this around 27, AD 27 or so. Okay? And so this same temple wasn't done though. It didn't actually complete its construction until AD 64, another 40 or so years after this. And Josephus records that 18,000 men or more were employed on building the, uh, this uh, temple over the course of those years. So for a Galilean carpenter to come in with a handmade whip and say, yeah, tear all this down, I can rebuild it in three days, they're gonna go, who's your contractor? There's no way you can do that. You're a, free, you know, you're a few fries short of a Happy Meal. And so notice what John explains in verse 21. Note with me that John says, no, 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 he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was speaking about his body, but they didn't realize it. They also didn't realize that the one who took six days to create the cosmos would only need three days to raise himself up. He had that power. And so later, as an accusation to accuse him, here's what the Jews say, Matthew 26, if you're taking note, verses 59 and 61. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. They're trying to find anyone that can lie. Finally, two came forward and said, I remember what he said. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That was part of the accusation. Now, we understand now Jesus wasn't speaking about the temple itself, but about his body. Destroy it. Kill me. And on the third day, it will be raised up. Look at verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
So here John flashes forward like a good episode of This Is Us and says, okay, this is now. They understood this later, but they didn't get it now. Okay, the disciples later remember this and believe. Okay? Most people want to see the sign, then they believe, not the scriptures that testify about Jesus. But this is our second important application point, if you're taking note this morning, that we need to make. Jesus is now the temple. Thus, we must believe his word and place our faith in him. Okay? Think about this. The temple was the centerpiece, the center place of worship, of music, of politics, of society, national celebration and mourning. But most importantly, it was the embodiment, the exact location where Yahweh had promised to dwell with his people. It was the focal point of the spiritual lifeblood of the nation of Israel. And that is now Jesus. Jesus is the word made flesh. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is the place, so to speak, where the glory of God has chosen to make his dwelling. And like the disciples, you and I, need to believe his word and place our faith in him. The end of John's gospel, chapter 20, uh, tells us why John's gospel was written. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but the things that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Did you catch that? The purpose for John writing his gospel is to believe. So we don't need to worship God at a physical location anymore. This temple uh, that Jesus cleansed was eventually destroyed and yet uh, to be rebuilt even today. But Jesus was put to death and he rose again on the third day. David Gusick says Jesus confidently claimed the power to raise himself from the dead. And he repeated the claim in John 10. It's interesting to note the New Testament also claims that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead Romans 6, Galatians 1, and that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, Romans 1 and 8. The resurrection of Jesus was a work of each person of the Trinity, each working together. So Jesus didn't succumb to the fickle hearts of the religious leaders and try to show off at this moment some miraculous sign. Why not? Well, that's why we have verses 23 through 25. Look at it with me, and this is the third idea, repentance of the heart. It says in verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. What's the next word? Yell it out for me. When, they, many believed when they saw the signs which he did. I believed when I saw. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men and had no need that any, anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, here's what this does not mean. This does not mean that Jesus rejects all men and thus he has a soft spot in his heart for women. Okay, that's not what this means, right? It's talking about mankind. Literally in the Greek, it's pretty awesome. It says Jesus knows all of mankind, but he doesn't entrust himself to mankind because men are corrupt. What does it mean to commit oneself? Uh, the word pisteo, here's what it means in the Greek. It means to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in, okay? Jesus did not commit himself. He didn't entrust himself uh, to those who decided to follow him just by seeing a sign. And Jesus knew that faith that was created by witnessing miracles, that was thin. There needed to be trials and tempering for that faith to take root. You know, it's easy to gather a crowd. It's easy to gather followers 
for a season. And eventually what we'll see in John 6 is that there's now a huge crowd. And finally, Jesus says, this is what I'm really about. And this, this large amount of people, almost all of them, departed and left Jesus. He knew what was in a man. Chuck Smith says he knew the fickleness of man. You didn't have to tell Jesus about people. He already knew. How many times do we tell Jesus all about ourselves? We don't need to do that because he already knows. See, many people believed in Jesus just when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus, what this really reads in the Greek is that they believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. I don't believe in you guys. I'm not committing myself to you. Why? Because you're just here for ulterior motives. You're not here to actually follow me. John Piper says what it says in essence is that Jesus knows what is in every heart. And so he can see when someone believes in a way that is not really believing. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart perfectly leads to the unsettling truth that some belief is not the kind of belief that obtains fellowship with Jesus and eternal life. Some belief is not saving belief. James talks about this in his epistle. Hey, you believe that that God exists out of the demons. The demons believe that, and then they shudder. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones actually points out that there are some who believe in Jesus intellectually, but their hearts and their wills have never been touched. He says, oh, they may be scholars, but knowledge has never changed their life. Lloyd-Jones says, others have their hearts touched, but their minds have not been in operation. In fact, they've been told that they should not try to understand. And then he says, others have not submitted their wills. Their heart and their mind are there, but not their will. It experiences everything. Uh, And these people don't bother to understand. And they don't want to serve God. And so he argues that all three of those are superficial faith because they've only picked out one thing that appeals to them. And they haven't understood who Christ is. And so when things don't go the way that they expect, they fall away. Uh, and actually don't follow him. Listen, we need an active faith in Jesus that's completely submitted to him, not just what he can do for us. I'm not just following you, Lord, because of the benefits I get from following you, because my parents follow you. I want to know Jesus and submit my life to him because uh, he's my savior and he's wonderful. And so how can we apply this to our lives today? Our third and final way of applying this is that, listen, guys, Jesus knows our hearts, amen? He knows our hearts, And thus, we must belong to him by repentance and faith. Jesus knows this morning what's in our hearts. And so to belong to Jesus, to truly be in Christ, we must renounce what's in our hearts. We must repent of our sin and trust Christ for our salvation. We're going to close, and I'm going to invite the band forward. And so go ahead and close your Bibles as our band makes the way up. We're going to close in song, and I'm going to ask you guys to stay seated during this last not last song, but next song. And uh, the ushers are gonna come forward in a moment and we're gonna pass out the elements during this song. And I wanna close this morning with a a pastor's challenge for us this morning. And, And here's the challenge on the screen. The question is simply this. Is your temple a holy place where God's glory dwells? Is your temple a holy place where God's glory dwells. I like what one pastor said. He said, everyone's body is a temple of something. Every one of us here has a body. Some of them are falling apart. Some of them are strong. 
Some of them are frail, but they're all a temple to something. This pastor said that some people like to use their body as a shrine unto themselves. Others, well, their body's a tavern, it's a pub, serving up the wrong kind of spirits. Others, their body's a restaurant whose God is their belly. He said, for many, their shrine is a gymnasium or a sports arena. Others people, other people's bodies look more like a brothel where sex is God. He said, maybe your body's a bank, maybe it's a playhouse, maybe it's a recreational vehicle, maybe it's a library, but as believers, corporately we're the temple of God. There's a divine occupant within us. And as one of God's temples, we are to be a place of worship today. You see, upon coming to Christ, his first order of business in our life is to tear down whatever shrine, whatever temple we've erected, and to build his temple within us to this end, that we would be God's holy dwelling place. So perhaps it's time for Christ to come this morning to clean house. As we close, we're gonna sing together about the man of sorrows who took our sin in his body on the tree. And as we do this, we're gonna receive the communion elements. I want you to hold on to them for a moment. Take the bread, take the cup. And what I wanna do is during this song and a few moments after the song, I'll be back up here after the song, we're gonna have a time of quiet reflection. And as a believer, what I'm gonna ask you to do, because I'm gonna do it, is to invite the Holy Spirit to do what Psalm 139 says. Search me, O God, and know me, and convict me of my sin. Is there an area, Lord, in my life where there's compromise, where I am living not as a temple of the Holy Spirit, but a temple of myself, a temple of sex, a temple of, of drugs or alcohol, a temple of pleasure, a temple of selfishness. And so we're gonna sing this song and reflect, and, and I would ask that we'd have a time of confession. No, not where we stand and yell it out in this place, but between us and the Lord, we say, Lord, you're coming in my heart and you're cleansing this temple. Holy Spirit, come and blow out the dust within. Make me new, make me holy. Forgive me as I confess it to you. And so if you'd bow your heads with me, we're gonna worship. And I wanna just ask the Holy Spirit, who is God? God, would you come in this time, in this moment, and would you fill our hearts with conviction if we've sinned, if we've turned from you, if we've allowed the temple that should be a place of holy worship, if we've turned that into a place of debauchery or selfishness, sinful, selfish ambition, forgive us, Lord. Would you come by your spirit and convict us? As we confess our sins to you this morning, would you overturn those areas that need to be overturned and turn them upside down and make them right? Cleanse the leaven. Make us a holy people that can worship you rightly. It's in Christ's name that we can do this alone. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.